Welcome to the X29 Podcast. If you have a Bible tonight, I invite you to turn it on or open it up to Colossians uh, chapter 1. Uh, there are a number of different directions I could go with a topic like this, theological clarity, but I would like to draw your attention uh, to this particular text <clears throat> as the Colossian church really needed theological clarity, and it's really helpful to see how Paul goes about uh, providing it. If you visit Colossae today in southwest Turkey, uh, you won't see much. I've had the privilege of being there a couple of times with some of the guys here uh, in the room, actually. Uh, All that's there in Colossae is this unexcavated mound, uh, and it's my secret fantasy one day to excavate it. Um, But even though we don't have the city preserved, we have something more important preserved, and that's the letter to the Colossians, which includes this uh, Christological masterpiece uh, in uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. In the opening of the letter, we see evangelistic church planting being emphasized as Paul highlights the ministry of Epaphras. Uh, It's most likely that Epaphras became a Christian while Paul was in Ephesus laboring there for some three years. He then goes to Colossae uh, to start this church, uh, the gospels bearing fruit there. It looks like uh, Epaphras is also very involved, if not the lead guy in Laodicea and Hierapolis, thus forming this early church planting network. Uh, And we tonight stand in this great tradition of planting churches worldwide, planting the gospel and seeing churches established. And so after Paul's introductory comments and prayer, he gives us this stunning portrait of Jesus Christ. And I would like to read it uh, in your hearing beginning in verse 15. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And this is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you know anyone like this. You can just mention a particular topic to uh, your friend and it immediately triggers unending talk about uh, their favorite subject. So perhaps you go to a friend who likes to travel and you say, hey, uh, you really enjoyed your trip to Europe, didn't you? Uh, And they begin to tell you about all the cities that they went to and all the places where they ate and they just go on and on and on. Or you meet uh, a young lady who's uh, newly engaged and you you tell her, hey, tell me about your fiance. And she pulls out the pictures and she talks about the accolades and he's, he's intelligent and he's good looking and he's only been to jail a few times and, and he's just, you know, fantastic. Uh, or you bring up, who's, who is better, MJ or LeBron? 
and you just sit back as uh, passionate basketball fans engage in, in talking about all the attributes of those individuals or which state has the best barbecue. And you begin to see the debate roll from Kansas City to Texas to Memphis uh, to the lousy barbecue in North Carolina. Um, well, well. When I was a seminary, we had a seminary professor who loved to talk about Qumran. And uh, whenever we didn't have our Hebrew homework, I would ask Dr. Cole, hey, Dr. Cole, didn't they find Psalm 42 in cave 11? And he would be like, oh, cave 11. And he would go on for about 50 minutes. And uh, we, we got to get out of class without you know, him knowing we didn't have our homework. Well, it's sort of like that with the Apostle Paul. You often read these really long passages where he just begins to gush forth praise to Christ. And so it is here. He, and he is this, and he is this, and he is this. And what triggers this holy run of praise is the realm transfer that he mentioned in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, when he says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now he goes on and he is, and he is, and he is. And he really doesn't recover from this exaltation of Christ uh, until the, the end of the letter. Now, contextually, this passage is at the heart of Paul's overall thesis that Christ is enough, that Christ is sufficient, right? And it's, it's good news tonight. It's vital for us to see the connection between the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. Because Jesus is supreme, it follows that he is sufficient. Because Christ is the preeminent one, it follows that he is the perfect savior. It's the supremacy of Christ that assures us of the sufficiency of Christ. And let his sufficiency give you hope tonight. That's right. Are you a struggling parent? Mm. Christ is enough. Yes, yes. Are you a tired pastor? I am, and Christ is enough. Come on, sir. Are you a tired youth worker? Christ is enough. Are you wounded from criticism today? Christ is enough. Are you in a spiritual valley? My mind. Christ is enough. Yeah, he is. Are you being called to plant a church in a hard place? Christ is enough. Are you single? Are you married? Christ is enough. His death was enough to secure our salvation. His resurrection was enough to assure us of our resurrection. His power is enough to sustain us to glory. His return will be enough to bring a perfect new heaven and new earth. And his grace is sufficient tonight to satisfy our hearts. So let's tell it to our souls. Let's tell it to one another. Let's tell it to the world. The Christ who is supreme over all things is sufficient for all our spiritual needs. Yes, 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 yes. And you're probably aware of the, the situation in Colossae that required this message. Paul says in chapter two that a philosophy has crept in threatening this new group of Christians. And Paul says it was not according to Christ. Some call this the Colossian heresy. And I will spare you 2,000 years of debate as to what that is exactly. Uh, but in my judgment, it's best to see it as a blend of, 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 of Jewish thought, uh, having a, a blend of pagan elements mixed in. You see various Jewish elements talked about in the letter, like days and food and drink and shadows and substance. But you also see things like worship of angels, asceticism, visionary experiences, all sorts of pagan elements as well. So you would call this basically what we call today syncretism. Now, syncretism is like an old school mixtape. That's right. I don't know if you guys had any mixtapes back in the day. Yeah. That's when you would listen to the top 100 and you would hit record when, when, when a song that you like would, would, would be there. And if you were dating somebody, you would, you would select like 20 great love songs and then you would, you would, you would give it to them. 
Uh, and I had everything from Garth Brooks to Queen Latifah to Sir Mix-a-Lot, right, right. Shania Twain, White Snake, Cool Mo D, all on this mixtape. And we, we used to call it a, a bootleg tape. It's a bootleg tape. And what was being sold in Colossae was a bootleg religion. They were telling the believers there that you need something more than Jesus. You need Jesus plus the mystery religion. You need Jesus plus the folk religion. And Paul is saying, knock it off. Just as you received him, keep walking in him. Yes. Right? And this is very important for our pluralistic culture. And this is why we need theological clarity. And so Paul zeroes in on the attributes of Christ in this passage that we're looking at. And he gives us, if you like, Jesus's CV. It's a condensed catalog of attributes All right. of our Savior. And I would like to show you a few of them uh, tonight as we worship through this text. First of all, we see Christ's clarity. Secondly, we see Christ's creation. Thirdly, we see Christ's control. Fourthly, we see Christ's church. And fifthly, we see Christ's cross. And all of it should lead us to praise tonight. All of it can encourage our souls tonight. First of all, Christ's clarity, verse 15. Come on, Doc. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, it's very interesting to see how Paul goes about correcting the whack theology in Colossae. One approach would be to first address the problems and then to, to provide the solution. And of course, you can, you can go that, that, that route. But Paul actually starts with the proper picture of Jesus before he gets to all of the false teaching that was threatening this new group of Christians. And I think that's instructive for us. For once the church has grasped the person and work of Jesus, they should have the discernment to detect false teaching and the courage to reject it. A clear understanding of Jesus is the best protection against false gospels today. And so he says, let me tell you who the real Christ is and you won't need any of that stuff. Right? And you have to get Jesus right or you get everything else wrong, don't you? It's kind of like button the wrong button on a shirt. You get the top one wrong and everything else is, is out of place. And that's why Christology, uh, the study of Christ is so important. So he begins first with the incarnation when he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now we may hear this idea of Jesus being the image as sort of a mere representation of the real thing being much less than the real thing, but that's not what Paul is saying. All right. He's not saying that in any way is, is Jesus less than God. The text tells us that in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in him. Yeah. What he's saying is that Jesus perfectly reveals the nature of God to us. Yep, yep. You remember Philip when he says to Jesus, hey, show us the Father. And what did Jesus say? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now in Genesis, we see that, that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. We are to represent him, to rule, to reflect his character. But we know because of sin, this, this image has been marred. But Jesus is not just in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. Yes. He is the perfect man, the perfect God. Or as the creed says, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Come on, Doc. And Paul says that believers have experienced the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And now he's making us more like him. So Jesus brings clarity to the question, what is God like? We don't believe in the God of our imagination. We believe in the God of revelation. He has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And it was out of the father's great love that he sent his son into the world. And now by faith in him, Paul says elsewhere, the spirit of his son resides in our hearts tonight. And this is why we plant churches. We want to tell the world who the real God is. 
Because around the world, we don't, people by, in many places at least don't have a problem believing in some kind of God. They just need clarity on who they should be believing in. We're not the only religion to have missionaries or to have preachers. What makes us unique is what we preach That's right. or who we preach. As John Stott put it well, why is it that some Christians cross land and sea, continents and cultures as missionaries? What on earth compels them? It is not in order to commend a civilization, an institution, or an ideology, but rather a person whom they believe to be unique. Yeah, yeah. And he is unique. Christ's clarity, Christ's creation. Beginning in verse 15, in the middle of verse 15, what Paul says next would have baffled both the Jews and the pagans in Colossae. The Jews didn't believe, of course, that Jesus was divine. And the pagans believed that many gods were responsible for the universe. And so Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. This doesn't mean, of course, that Jesus was created as the cults teach today following the ancient heretic Arius. This whole passage is supporting the preexistence of Christ. Right? The next verse says he created all things, therefore Jesus was not created. Amen. There never was a time when Jesus was not. Jesus always was, wasing. And what he says is that he is the firstborn, which can be taken in one of two ways. It can mean priority in regard to time or being supreme in rank. And I think the latter is in view here. Uh, Psalm 89, 27, referring to David, the psalmist says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of kings on earth. And their firstborn is a title of supremacy. And so it is with Christ. He is the firstborn over creation. He outranks everything in this world. Yes. He's greater than wealth. He's greater than sex. He's greater than power. He's greater than sports. He's greater than pumpkin spice lattes. He's, he's greater than all the things we get to enjoy tonight. And he is responsible for it all. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, microscopic and cosmic, physical and spiritual, on, biological, God. geological, human and demonic. And even in this beautiful place where we get to, to gather together, we're reminded that creation is to, to lead us to, to praise our Christ who is supreme over this creation. And you notice how Paul says it here. He praises Christ through prepositions. By, through, and for. All right. When he says it was created by him, that is, he's the origin and cause of creation. It's through him in that he is the mediated, mediating agent through whom it actually came Doing into being. Right. Not a group of angels or other intermediaries as it was being taught in Colossae. And it was created for him or toward him, actually, in the sense that he is the end and goal of creation. All things are meant to serve his will for his glory. And you see a supremacy in this little word, all, that Paul just tirelessly continues to use in this text. He, he goes into every nook and cranny of existence to tell us that it was all created uh, by him and through him and for him. And then he says, even these visible and invisible powers. And we know in chapter two, he talks about how Jesus disarmed the dark forces of this world by his triumphant death on the cross. And Jesus is sovereign even over those dark forces. Therefore, we don't have to fear them. We don't have to fear them. And that was very, a very important word. And, and as Paul is writing them, as people were in fear all the time of dark things. But once you understand who Jesus is, once you have clarity on who Jesus is, it casts out fear. We don't have a puny Christ. We have the preeminent Christ. The evil forces are at work in the world, yeah. but this is our Christ. 
And this is why we can go to hard places. This is why we can do hard things. This is why we can endure hard things. This Christ is with us and for us and in us. And he moves from there in verse 17 to talk about Christ's control. When he says the word and, which is in the Greek text, I love that there's always an and to Jesus. There's always something else uh, that, that we could be saying, that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. They all cohere. Jesus uh, keeps the cosmos, as one writer says, from becoming chaos. All right, Doc. And again, what difference does this make? Well, again, in ancient paganism, people suffered from anxiety because they didn't know if their god or goddess was in control. Chaos could happen at any moment. And today the secularists espouse a view that it's all held together somehow devoid of God. And Jesus said, or Paul says, in Jesus, he holds all things together. He sustains the cosmos moment by moment. This doesn't mean there aren't hurricanes or, tornado, or tornadoes. We know there, there are, but, what, but why isn't the world just flying off into nothingness? Because he holds all things together. And therefore life is not meaningless and the world is not chaos. Now this doesn't mean we won't face pain and discouragement along the way and it may not take it all away, but it does give you hope that you can endure until the last day. Because if Jesus can sustain the cosmos, he can sustain us in our chaos. And that's good news for us tonight, isn't it? As the old hymn writer says, immortal honors rest on Jesus's head. My God, my portion and my living bread. In him I live, upon him I cast my care. He saves me from death, destruction, and despair. Our Savior saves us tonight, not just from death, praise God he does, but he also saves us from despair. The Christ who sustains the cosmos can sustain you in your chaos. I don't know if you, somewhere along the way, probably in the last couple of years, you've said something like I've said, like, I should have lost my mind by now. That's right. I don't know how I'm still here. That's right. Like it's just a testimony that we still are here and, and we're, we're still here. It's because Jesus Christ is sustaining us and it's not a little Christ that's sustaining that's us. Right. It's the sovereign cosmic Christ that is sustaining us tonight. He really is enough for us. Yes, sir. You know, early on in our marriage, Kimberly and I were living in New Orleans and I came down for dinner and she had made a, a, a spinach salad. Which, which is fine as, as long as there's something else that, that, that you know. And so I, I began looking around in the stove and on, or maybe it's in the crock pot. I'm looking in the microwave and I was like, babe, we, we're going to have to have a little chat uh, about this. Now, um, I was basically saying this is not enough and we should never say that about our Christ. That's right. And I should never say that about my dear wife's dinner either. As, as she will tell you, it, it was loaded with things. It just didn't have any chicken on it. Uh, but, but, but I, I wanted some chicken. Uh, Jesus is adequate for everything. That's Christ's control. Fourthly, Christ's church. We're now at the redemption, new creation part of this majestic text when he says, and he is the head of the body, the church. The head, that is, he's Lord over it. Jesus is governing and guiding his church tonight. We are his body. This points to the intimate union between Christ and his people. It points to the idea that the church is a living organism made up of members joined together. And the church is the means by which Christ carries out his purposes on earth. Therefore, it's a glorious thing to be part of a church. It's a glorious thing to, be, to do anything in, a, in the church. To be in any kind of, of, of ministry 
leadership. And so it is Christ's church and we love his church and he's building his church. Alistair Begg tells a story one time about uh, in the 1920s, a guy named Lord Reith who helped establish the BBC. And he was a very strong man from the highlands of Scotland. And when the BBC began to be carried on uh, or uh, began to be carried along by the tide of secularism that swept through Britain in the 60s, a a young producer stood up in a meeting and said to Lord Reith that the world was changing and that the BBC did not need to continue with its religious programming output. He said people were no longer interested in it and the church was, quote, becoming increasingly obsolete. And Lord Reith, who stood six feet, six inches tall, stood up and told this young man to take a seat. And he said, the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. And yes, it will. Yes, it will. It will stand at the grave of every news outlet. That's right. It will stand at the grave of every institution. That's right. There is only one institution, the church, the body of Christ that Jesus has promised to build. And he said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's why I want my life intertwined with the church. Because Jesus loves his church. That's right. That's and right. we want to love what Jesus loves. Yeah, yeah. And Paul tells us why. Why he is the head of the church in the next phrase, which can be translated. Because he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That's why it's his church. And here I think Paul has the idea of precedence in that, that Jesus is the first to come from the dead to resurrection life, never to die again, ushering in a new age. You might think of him here as a, as a trailblazer, as a, as a pathfinder, a pioneer. You think of him like uh, Neil Armstrong when he landed on the moon, when he said one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And so it is with Christ. He stepped out into the sunlight, resurrected, and more will follow because we are united to him. Michael Green in his book, The The Empty Cross of Jesus, illustrates this by saying in the Middle Ages, there was a debate about whether or not there could be a sea route to India. And there's a lot of political and economic debate over this. And people wanted to get to that rich land of spices uh, in India, but they didn't know if they could get around the tip of Africa. And all attempts had failed, but eventually one sailor succeeded. He rounded the Cape and reached the east. His name was Vasco da Gama the first European to reach India by sea. And it had been called the Cape of Storms until da Gama did it. And ever since he sailed back, it was impossible to doubt that a way to the Orient actually can exist. In fact, that Cape was renamed to the Cape of Good Hope. And Green says it's like that with Jesus being the firstborn from the dead. He is the first in sequence. More will follow. He is the Christ of good hope. Is there any way through death Can you go into death and come back into life? Yes, because Jesus took the voyage into darkness and into death and he came out in resurrection glory and he takes our hand when we're breathing our last breath and he says, I've been there. I will lead you out. As I live, you also will live. What is true for Christ is true of his people. What is true for the head is true for the body. And by the spirit tonight, we share in that resurrection life. And one day we will experience it fully. So in verse 17, we see that Jesus can deal with our, our despair. He, he sustains all things. In verse 18, we see that Jesus can deal with our death. He's the firstborn from the dead. In all things that he might be, he says, preeminent. First place. And if Jesus is first place in our hearts, he'll, he'll be on our lips regularly, won't he? Yes. 
Yes. And you see, that's how evangelism really works. It's an overflow, right? We talk about that which we love. If you come over to my house on a Saturday and I'm making guac, I really get into my, my guac, man. And, and I, I love to, to dice it up and chop it up and add a little citrus. And, and after I get it exactly the way I want it, I can't contain it to myself. I go around the house and I'm like, yo, you got to try this. You, you got to try that. And that's good evangelism. Is when, when you're tasting that the Lord is good. You, you want the world to know it. And when you marinate on texts like this, you tell your friends and, and lost neighbors, I don't know what you're tasting, but you haven't tasted this. That's right. You, you need Jesus Christ. And I think Paul, what made him such a zealous evangelist is because Christ was indeed preeminent in his heart. Well, he goes from there then finally to Christ's cross. You can feel the descent from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. He restates something of the deity of Christ in verse 19. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then this divine son of God who created all things, who sustains all things, dies on a cross. And he says he did a work of reconciliation that first included cosmic reconciliation. That this Christ, he says, is reconciling all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Mm -hmm. We see the scope of this, all things, the whole created order. So Jesus is not the Lord of some spiritual never, never land, but he took on flesh and he will redeem it all. This is similar to Romans 8, 23, that creation has been subjected into futility. It's out of sync. It needs to be restored. And one day it will be restored in glory. We sing that great hymn around Christmas, don't, don't we, that he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And how, how far is the curse found? <laughs> Everywhere. And what will he redeem? Everything. And even this cosmic work happened through the blood of his cross. And then he goes personal. You notice verse 21, and you. Aren't you glad there's an and you? This is vintage Jesus. And he, and he, and he, and he, Paul says, and finally he says, and you. Little Colossians. This was the least significant town in the New Testament to get a letter from Paul. And he says, you, in the little Lycus Valley, this Jesus has come for you. He cares about you. He's mindful of us tonight, guys. What a thought. I have a friend named, named Rodney who passed away this year. A member of a, an Acts 29 church. Some of his members are, are here tonight. Pastors here. Died way too soon and he was a designer. And he designed the logo for, um, I think it was the Texas, uh, or the, uh, the uh, Texas, I can't, not the Cowboys. Help me. Uh, Houston Texans, thank you. The, um, uh, the, uh, the Toronto Raptors and then the Charlotte Hornets. And he loved to tell me this story. He was on the phone with the Hornets organization and it was on a speakerphone and all of a sudden he heard Hey, Rod, it's MJ. And he said, man, Michael Jordan knows my name. There's something infinitely greater. This Christ knows our name. Yes. And you. And Rodney is, is tonight way more impressed by him yes. than of, of any superstar that's ever walked this earth. My friends, he will take you to be in a new creation. How did he do this? Paul says, well, there was alienation. At one time, we were messed up. 
doing evil deeds, hostile in mind, alienated. And this is the problem we have with the modern culture to try to get them to embrace the gospel often is that they don't think they need to be reconciled. They think they're just kind of cool. I remember uh, being in Greece one time doing uh, uh, evangelism on the beach, which is not a really good place to do evangelism in, in Greece, but um, you, you kind of need to look at people, but uh, it's, it's hard. Uh, and, but there were these guys from Bangladesh that kept coming over to try to sell us a mat to, to lie down on. And I kept saying, I don't want your mat, pal. And eventually he came over and I said, okay, I'll give you 10 euro if you give me 10 minutes to talk about Jesus. And he said, five euro. I said, okay, five minutes to talk about Jesus. Um, and so I was, I was trying to do this little illustration with an object, an object, and a cross in the middle to reconcile, but I couldn't find anything in the sand. So it was like a cigarette butt. And I was like, you're, you're like a cigarette butt. And uh, <laughs> totally botched this whole thing. And then I was like, and, and God, he's like a water bottle. And I drew the cross and my five minutes was up and it was not a really good uh, presentation of the gospel. But that, what I was trying to communicate to my friend was that we are, there is a gulf, there is a chasm. And that is the challenge with uh, the modern perception today. Most people think me and God are cool. And so we have to press upon them the holiness of God, right? This need for reconciliation. And Paul says, this is what's happened to us in Christ, that he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is justification language, isn't it? Tonight, what a thought that we can stand before God holy without blemish above reproach. That little phrase that pops up in the pastorals. This is the basis for our above reproachness. We're living out of this identity, aren't we? Tonight, we are above reproach in Jesus Christ. We are holy because of what he has done. Jesus were, were treated as if he were me so that I might be treated as if I were him. I can stand before him. And this is why we must get the gospel to the world. Kimberly and I were in Rome several years ago, and we went to this church called the Church of the Holy Steps. And there's a sign outside of this church that says, if you pray up these steps on certain times of the year, you can have total atonement. And we watched as people were crawling up these steps. These steps were supposedly from Jerusalem and Jesus walked up them during the passion. And it was so sad as we watched these people crawl and pray up these steps, seeking to deal with the guilt that afflicted them. And we thought to ourselves, there are no more steps. Jesus already went up the steps for us, right? There are no more steps. They're just songs of praise now that, that flow from our heart. The accuser will try to accuse us. He will try to bring up certain things, right? We sing the hymn to him. Well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. We go back to the gospel and realize the verdict has been pronounced right? And this is why theological clarity matters because people will do anything to get that guilt and shame off of them. And we have the solution for them. That's right. So he goes from alienation to reconciliation and then to, uh, to, to glorification. When he says, if you continue in the faith, he wants them to have a persevering faith because all true faith is persevering faith. He wants them to not shift from the hope of the gospel. That's sort of the main theme of the letter. Stop shifting, stick with Jesus. You don't need Jesus plus this other stuff. Don't dabble in the mystery religions. Don't dabble in the folk religions. And Paul says, this is the gospel that I've been preaching everywhere. It's proclaimed uh, in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He shows us the universal significance of the gospel. The gospel that the Colossians had heard was the gospel that Paul had been preaching everywhere in the Gentile world. 
I love the flow of this text, don't you? The cosmic Christ, the, the crucified Christ, out to this preaching of Christ into the world. And we stand in this great legacy. We are good news people in a bad news world. So some final reflections, just three quick ones. Number one, let's learn from Paul's example. Keep pointing people to the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus in all your disciple making. Him we proclaim, Paul says later. Let's saturate our churches and let's saturate the nations with sound doctrine that magnify the Lord Jesus. Second, let this vision of Christ encourage you tonight. Weak saints have a strong savior. Maybe you're discouraged because you're not seeing fruit. You feel ineffective. You've been hurt by people. You're dealing with relational conflict. You're dealing with your own failures. You're dealing with health issues. You're dealing with unmet expectations. You're dealing with betrayal, death and loss, grief. Discouraged saints have a sovereign Christ who loves them. You know, oftentimes people will say, what's your life verse, Tony? And I don't really have a life verse, I have a life phrase. It's not even a sentence, but it's in 2 Corinthians 6.10 where Paul says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There's not a day in my life where I don't have deep sorrow over something in my life, in my family's life, in my church, in this world. And yet there is a well of joy from which to drink on my most sorrowful day. Yes, it is. Because my greatest problem has been solved already by Jesus Christ. And one day we will stop crying. One day. One day we will stop grieving. One day. One day we will stop fighting. One day we will stop dying. And we can be assured that that's coming because this is our Christ. Finally, let this passion ignite your, let this passion ignite your, your passion for global mission. Jesus is supreme over creation and new creation. He's not some tribal deity. He's Lord of the nations. Yes. Right? We have a number of people in our church we've sent out to plant churches and sent to the, to the nations and it's been a great privilege to see. And we also have a very interesting mix. We have a ton of kids. I mean, little kids. We average, my exec- executive pastor tells me, one birth every 12 days at Imago Day. That's our name, Imago Day. It's appropriate name, isn't it? Um, making them all the time. And it's... <clears throat> And a lot during COVID, I would, I would add that. And I can find myself in this, in this, uh, this talk of a very serious conversation with somebody who's, who's wanted to, to go on mission. I remember on one occasion talking to a young lady who wanted to go move to a Muslim country to, to make the gospel known. And a really heavy, strong conversation. And I had this little guy yanking my arm at the same time. And, and she's telling me and I'm talking, I'm trying to ignore him. And finally I look to him and he says, Pastor Tony, I can do the moonwalk. I can do the moonwalk. I said, all right, man, let me see your moonwalk. And it was, it was a pretty good moonwalk. Um, but then I had this picture right here. How do we get the moonwalkers to the mission field? Yeah. How do we train up these little ones so that we can send them out? I think it's by giving them a glorious picture of Jesus Christ, that they would be captivated by him more than anything else. When you have a Christ this good and this glorious, you will want the world to hear of him. And you will believe that you can do hard things through him. Acts 29, Jesus Christ is worthy of all our efforts. One day we will see him and it will have all been worth it. 
all of that planning, all of that teaching, all of that praying, all of that encouraging, all those meetings, all that work of church planting, all of those tears will all be worth it when we see the preeminent one, the Lord over creation and new creation. And he alone deserves first place in our hearts, first place in our churches and first place in our network. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God.